0: You turn over in your bibles to matthew twenty two I want to thank everybody that helped uh, decorate come out and uh set everything up last night appreciate that and if you're helping with the tea, you can come out after church just for a quick meeting right down here and uh it won't take uh, all that long so but as you're turning over in matthew chapter twenty two Just by uh, means of uh, introduction, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in verse 34 this morning, and uh, it seems that when people read this passage and focus on this passage of Scripture, uh, they focus directly on verses 37 and 38, which speak of love, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, if you know anything about our society, we definitely live in a love-dominated society today. Uh, You see people speaking about love all over the place, on TV, on ads, on everything. And uh, especially this time of year, they appeal to that emotion. And uh, we uh, want to fully understand what Jesus means by love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And immediately people tend to jump right to those verses and kind of talk about love and end up in 1 Corinthians or wherever, but um, the love chapter. But I think this morning I, I want to dig a little deeper underneath these verses so that we understand the context by which we're reading them. And so to do that, we have to remind ourselves of our setting, where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been away from it for a week. Some of you have been sick and out, so uh, just to remember, by this time it's, it's Passion Week, it's the last week of Christ, and it's Wednesday in our text, and uh, it's the Wednesday of Passover week. Friday, Jesus will give up his life on Calvary and be crucified, and uh, that following uh, Sunday he will be raised from the dead, and uh, here we find Jesus in the temple And he's been spending time there. He entered the city, and he was hailed as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Deliverer. And they thought he was going to be the Deliverer from the Romans' bondage that were holding the Jews captive there under their rule. And uh, they wanted a Messiah that would come and set them free. And they hoped and they envisioned this Messiah to be Christ. And so when he rode in triumphantly on Monday, they hailed him as such. People followed him, and they laid down palm branches and all that. And on Tuesday, he went uh, to the temple rather than going to the Roman fort and attacking the Romans, as many thought he would do since he was going to be their deliverer. But he went to the temple, a religious site. And he went in, and he threw out all the money changers, and he threw out all those who were making money off the people desecrating his father's house, which was to be a a house of prayer, not a, a den of thieves as they made it. And then that night, after he cleansed the temple, he went back out to Bethany and he stayed in the house of where he was staying there, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And so here we find his disciples. Um, This this next day, he came back into uh, Jerusalem and he went directly back to the temple, which he just cleaned. And he went in and he thought to uh, start teaching. And You've got to remember, the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day, were very upset with him at this point. They were ticked off at him basically for three reasons. First of all, he taught what was contrary to their own teachings. They were given the stewardship of the Word of God. They took that stewardship and they, they perverted it. They took the Word of God and to mean something else from what it was written to mean. And they used that perversion to beat down the people, to make themselves look righteous. So he taught something contrary. It wasn't just the external part of your religion that mattered, but it was the heart. And whenever Jesus taught that, it flew right in the face of the religious leaders. And the second reason they didn't like what he was teaching was because, basically, he was more popular than they were. He was much more popular than they were. They took advantage of the people and uh, made the people feel you know, guilty and all those other things. Jesus came along and really rallied the people around him they just they were just naturally drawn to this incredible teacher and as the religious leaders stepped back and looked at this they thought hey this guy's cutting in on our game here we don't like this for that reason and then number 3 they saw his incredible power the religious leaders of Jesus day didn't argue that he didn't that he did these miracles they knew he did and that's what really blew them away and so you remember back earlier in Matthew they said oh we can't Dispute the fact that you're doing miracles, but you're doing it by the power of Satan, not by the power of God, which is just ridiculous. And so here's a man who contradicted their teaching. He was taking over their popularity, and he could do basically anything he wanted to do with power and authority. And he was a threat to them. He was a threat to their, their corner of their little religiosity that they had built up around them. And they wanted to eliminate him. They wanted to get rid of him. And how do you eliminate somebody who's so popular? You can't just go and say, okay, we're going to take this guy out. You know, The crowds would have turned on the religious leaders if they tried to do that. So they had to come up with a way. They had to come up with a scheme. And what they thought to do, after they met together and they discussed this, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem there, they thought, well, you know what, we can't take this guy out publicly, but we can basically uh, make him... Um, just want to go away. And the only reason we can do that is because we can start asking him questions. We can begin to, um, in the people's minds, have them question his authority, question his ability to understand the Scriptures. They were really looking to publicly discredit Christ. Because they thought if they publicly discredited him with the people or with Rome, either one, then they would come in and do their handiwork. Either the crowds would turn on him or the Roman government would turn on him and they would take him away and haul him away and have him killed. And so they made every attempt to make him look bad, And we see that attempt in chapter 22. Now remember, as they confront him with a series of questions, they're underlying motive is to discredit him. They don't want an answer to the question. They want to, they want to catch him. They want to trap him. And so that's what their goal is. And so we see here that basically he had three basic questions, three groups of people that came to him. And the first one was they came to him and they began to ask him about uh, the the whole um Wedding, wedding, or the parable of the uh, paying taxes to Caesar. And it says there that when they plotted, they wanted to entangle him in his words. And so they thought, okay, you know what, we can basically catch him in a trap here. They knew what they spoke, what he spoke about. Chapter 21, verse 45 says that, that when he was using these different parables, and talked about them in this light. The religious leaders they understood what he was saying, and so here they come and they try to trap him in these different questions. And the first one was with the, uh, the the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. And as they approached Jesus, they wanted to ask him a question that would get him in trouble with the Romans' authority. And so they asked him whether or not they should pay their taxes to Caesar. And Jesus answered that question in a very unique way. As a matter of fact, he basically turned him away. He said, you don't pay tribute to Caesar. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he pulled out a coin. He said, whose picture is it on it? Remember? Well, give it to him. It's his. Why would you want to keep it? We don't worship idols. That was the whole idea. But he did draw a line at worshiping Caesar. We don't do that. But you can pay him taxes. And so he got out of that one, and they were confounded at his answer. And then the Sadducees came along, and the Sadducees, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in a life after this, the Pharisees did. So here you see all these different religious groups coming together against Jesus Christ. It's not very uh, different than what that is today. You see a lot of different religious groups, when you stand up for Christ and what his word says, that they will kind of join forces against you. That's just what they do. So the Sadducees came with this second question in verse 23, and they wanted to know his view on the resurrection. And they've been... Probably using this question to trap the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. And every time they would talk about this, the Sadducees would say, Well, what if there was a guy who married somebody and uh, then they, they died and they married and married and go on and on and on. And it goes on there. You read it in verses 23 to 33. And they give this really ridiculous story, a bizarre situation, where this man is basically. They're, they're stepping up and, and, and helping out the, the family as they should. And it says that they, they keep on dying. And down at the end there, it says in verse 28, eight eight, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? All right. So her husband's kept dying. And as was custom, the other brother would marry to, to, to give her children. And so their little story said, well, they all died. Now, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? And he answers it in such a way that blows their mind once again, saying that in heaven we don't have marriage. Don't you know? And so they tried to get him politically. They tried to get him theologically with that issue of the resurrection. And now we come to the third question. All right, two groups have failed. And now we come to the third question, and that's where we find ourselves in this context in verse 35, uh, or verse 34. And we understand that they were trying to trap him. They were trying to test him. They weren't just asking questions. You know, people say, well, it's great to ask questions. Yeah, it is. If you're asking with the right motive. You know, we even had some people at the prophecy conference that were asking uh, Dr. Hawking some questions, but they were asking with the wrong motive. They didn't want to hear his answer. They just wanted to bloviate about their own theological position. And he had to get kind of forceful with them to the point where he he told this wonder lady, look, you didn't come here to learn, you came here to try to question me on what I believe and what the Word of God teaches. So I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And so sometimes people have the wrong motivation. But here, that's what their case was. They had the wrong motivation in asking Jesus this question. And the way he answered each one of these questions, in Mark 12, 34, this is what it says. When this was over, no man dared to ask him any more questions. In other words, he answered them in such a way, it just blew their minds. They couldn't believe it. They had nothing else to say. So, let's see what happens here as we introduce the, the scene here in verse 34. It says... I'll read the text, verse 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, now, what we see here is rather interesting, right from the very beginning. We see that that Jesus is uh, really confronted once again. The Pharisees heard because they weren 't there. remember they sent their their uh, the Sadducees to Jesus the last time, so they heard what happened, and it says. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. He silenced them. That word silence is, a word, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean that he, he just put his hand over his mouth. No, it, it means that he basically gagged them to the point where they were not able to speak. They had nothing more to say. It wasn't a voluntary silencing. They weren't saying, oh, we're not going to say anything more. No, they wanted to say more, but they couldn't. It's used in Mark 1.25 of the silencing of a demon. It's also used in Mark 4.39 when he silenced the storm. Or 1 Corinthians 9.9 of the muzzling of the ox. It's an unwilling silencing. They didn't want to be silenced, but that's exactly what he did. He silenced them. Silenced the Sadducees. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't, didn't agree. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. All right? And they took the whole Old Testament and they believed in all that. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in anything else. That was it. And so it was interesting when Jesus answered them about the resurrection, he answered them from those five books. And so you see the Pharisees hearing about the Sadducees just being shut down. Now remember, the Sadducees probably have dealt with Pharisees before on the topic of the resurrection. And the Pharisees probably lost. They probably thought, they probably used the same question they used on Jesus to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees just walk away shaking their heads. How are you going to answer that? But Jesus was able to answer it. So when the Pharisees heard that the Sadducees had been silenced, part of them probably was like, yeah, you know, got them. We could never do that. Why didn't we think of that? You know, that's probably what they thought. But the other part thought, ah, now we've got to devise another scheme. We've got to devise something else. we got to get together, and that's what it says there. It says they gathered together. And uh, they were probably upset with the fact that they, Jesus didn't fall into the Sadducees' trap, but they were also kind of in their heart partly kind of rejoicing that the fact that At least Jesus believed in the resurrection. He wasn't like the Sadducees. And so it says they gathered together, which is kind of an interesting thing when you you stop and you think about prophecy concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because really, just that little word there, the religious leaders gathered together, that means the Pharisees and the Sadducees, probably the scribes, they all gathered together thinking, okay, what's next? What do we do now? And it says in Psalm 2, it says this (coughs) in verse 2 of Psalm 2, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you see how even this little kind of small little gathering here in Matthew 22 of the Pharisees and the Sadducees against God and against his anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It really was. In Acts four twenty six, it, it it refers to that verse in Psalm uh, two. It says, "The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His Christ." And so you see that Psalm two looked really forward to the cross that they would gather against Him, and then in Acts chapter four verse twenty six. It basically looks back to that time when they gathered against him. And so you see a fulfillment of prophecy right there in that place. And so this is the third time they're trying to catch him. The third time they're trying to catch him in his words, to, to paint a scenario where he just won't be able to get out of this one. He's going to tick somebody off. He's going to get the Romans ticked off or, or the people that are so, he's so popular with. Somehow we have to get him discredited in the eyes of the people. And so it says the Pharisees heard that, the, that he had silenced the Sadducees. They had gathered together. And then look at what it says in verse 34 or 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Now, why did he ask the question? It says to what? To test him, right? To test him. And Jesus uses this illustration, really, as an opportunity to talk about Love, a love for God and a love for uh, your neighbor, and even a love for yourself. But let's look first of all here at this plot that the Pharisees put together. Uh, the first test of Jesus by the Pharisees was made through the disciples of the Herodians. It was political in nature. The second one was through the Sadducees, was theological depending, uh, really pertaining to the, the resurrection. And now the Pharisees are going to test him again in the area of theology. Now, when Jesus answered this crazy question about the resurrection that the Sadducees asked, uh, he showed that even Moses taught the resurrection. That's what he quoted from. He quoted from one of the first five books of the Torah. And they just were silenced, it says. Um, the Sadducees were verbally incapacitated by the Lord. And these guys were not at a loss for words, usually. You know, they were the typical religious people that just liked to gab, 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 talk, 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 get all the attention. That's kind of what they were all about. And when the, when the, when the Pharisees heard that, they probably thought, hey, okay, we've got to come up with something else. And so they sent one of their lawyers now, that word there is is really, you could refer to it as a scribe. You know, the, the scribes were the guys that were kind of up in the hills studying the word. They, they were every little letter and every little nuance. They wanted to know everything. They transcribed it. That's what they did. Okay? The scribes were totally focused on the word of God. They didn't want to be around people. They didn't want any of that kind of a thing. They were, they were just kind of more, more focused, more intellectually driven by the text, kind of the... the kind of like the Essenes. That's what they were. They were even further out. But the lawyer here, this word lawyer is an interesting word because some people say, well, that word shouldn't even be there. Matthew never uses that word. Well, he's just using a new word. That's all. It doesn't mean that he can't use it, all right? But what it seems to indicate is that this lawyer, whoever he was, was not just an ordinary scribe. He was kind of a scribe among the scribes. He was a top-notch scribe, you might say. And it says there that he came with the motivation to test him, to discredit him. So he was probably a cut above the religious folks of that, that, that group. And uh, maybe in honesty and humility, he was even a cut above them. It seems that he was rather sincere just by the interaction here that we have with this lawyer. But he, still, he wants to test Jesus. That's his, that's his goal. They sent him out for that purpose. You go, use your wit, use your knowledge of the law, and you ask him a question that he can't answer, and then everybody will sit back and go, ha ha, got ya. And so, verse 36, you see the question asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Notice he addresses him as teacher. We've talked about this before. He wasn't Probably being malicious here, as some of the other questioners were, whenever they came up to him, you could almost hear it, you know, in their oh, teacher, you know, oh, you'd think you know it all. This guy seemed a little more sincere. Maybe he was just a little more uh, with it. I don't know. Maybe his motivations were a little different, but he was still there to test him. That was his goal. And so you you see here his question, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the law? The law is, is of Moses. The law of Moses. Moses was everything to these people. I mean, everything hinged on the books of Moses. Especially for the Sadducees, that's all they accepted. The Pharisees kind of accepted more of the scripture, but still, Moses was a supreme figure in scripture in their religion. Moses had spoken with God face to face. He was the humblest man on earth. He had taken the engraved tablets of the law directly from the hand of God, remember? He was also a great deliverer whom God called to lead Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. So he was without peer among the people of Israel. God chose him. One rabbi said this, refer. That By referring to Moses as this, faithful in all of my household. Um, The Lord ranked Moses even above the angels. That little quote is in Romans 12, 7. But from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus understood that. I mean, he's God, right? He understands all this. And he always answered their questions a lot of times. He said, I never came to abolish the law. Right? I'm not here to do away with the law and the prophets, but I came to what? Fulfill it. That's what he said in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He made that very clear. Even though he was the Messiah, God's own son, he wasn't preaching his own little message. He took his message from the word of God. And because he did that, that's what kind of blew them away, how he handled the word of God. And so they really had Moses up on a pedestal. And you have to understand the law was made up of basically 613 different laws. And they were split up. They would split them up into affirmative laws, positive laws, and negative laws. There was 248 affirmative laws. And they said this is one for every part of the human body. They had 365 negative three hundred and sixty-five negative laws, and that was basically one for each day of the year. And so the laws were divided also between the heavy laws and the light laws. Um, binding and less binding, all this. They had all this minutia that the rabbis put together. And they would spend... Hours and hours debating the silliest things concerning the law. And so here this lawyer, this scribe, comes to Jesus in front of everybody and asks him, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, I'm sure that they thought, depending on his answer, they didn't anticipate what he would say. But here's what Jesus says. Here's the, the question answered in verse 37. It says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second, this is the great commandment, the, fir- in the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, without even hesitating, right, he responds... And he gave this answer in total accord, not only with the Mosaic law, but even with their ancient Jewish customs, based on that law. The command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark adds, with all your strength. That's part of what they call the Shema, Hebrew for hear. And they, they hear, O Israel. That's, that's basically, it's coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 9, Deuteronomy 11, Verses uh, 13 to 21 is another version in Numbers chapter 15. There's another one, but see in Jesus' day, the faithful Jew would recite that Shema twice a day, and, and out of out of Deuteronomy, and they would actually take that portion of Scripture out of Deuteronomy and they'd copy it on pieces of parchment, and they'd put it on their Little phylacteries they used to wear around their head, and they'd put it on their on their head, or they'd put it on their uh, their left arms, and they'd bind themselves up with these things so that everybody would see. Oh, that's the word of God. You have it on your head. You have it on your arm. You know that's that's what they do. Have you ever had seen those little? Uh, you ever gone to a Jewish home and you you see those little? Uh, not mezuzah, uh They're called. Uh, uh, mezuzah, that's what they're called, I was, thinking, I was thinking Methuselah, mezuzah, it's that little thing that the Jews put on there, well, inside that is a copy, supposed to be, of the Shema, a portion of text out of Deuteronomy, and so there were, this was a big thing, you know, I mean, we, we believe in memorizing scripture, and we believe in all that, but, you know, it would be a little weird if we started pasting post-it notes with scripture, you know, written on our foreheads, I mean, that would just be a little odd, but that's literally what they did. And so Jesus says here, I'm literally declaring to you that the great commandment is the commandment of Moses that all of you recite twice a day. That's what he's saying. And not only that, but you probably bind it on your forearms and your foreheads. And so they're very familiar with this. This wasn't something that was just out of the blue. But let's look at what this says. It says, you shall love the Lord your God. That word for love there is rather interesting because it means not only a strong emotion, but it also means an act of your will, an act of your intellect, uh, a determined uh, intellectual choice to love. It's not based on just your emotions. It may entail that, but it's not just based on your, your emotions. In the New Testament, it would be the agape love, it's a committed love, it's a persful, purposeful love, it's an intelligent love. It's something that you choose to do. It's not something that maybe even sometimes you feel like doing. You know, the, the one that you feel all the time is what? Phileo love, right? That's that. And then eros love is, is the uh, sensual love. But here he says, don't just love the Lord your God emotionally, but choose to love him with your intellect, with your mind. And I think that that's important for us to understand today, especially the day and age we live in today. You know, if you can't see it, then it's not worth, you know, entertaining. Um, And yet God is real, beloved. He's not some, you know, just being out there nowhere and has nothing to do with anybody. He's intimately involved in our lives on a daily basis. And so that love that we're to have for him should come from an a, a act of our will. We should choose to love him because he is the only one and true God. And it tells us how. How should we love him? It says there, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And as I said, Mark over in Mark twelve thirty adds the word strength. And these aren't three different kinds of love. This, these are, you might say, just different uh, elements of that love that we have for the Lord. Okay, they're not three or four different kinds of love that you have. Okay, you have to love them with your heart. That's one kind of the soul. No, it's speaking of the entire love, but it's describing it in different ways. See, in the ancient Hebrews, the, the heart referred to the core of one's personal being. That's who you were in your heart. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's your whole being. That's what they refer to as your heart. The term soul is really what we would call our emotions, the seed of our emotions. It's the word that when Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, my, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about his emotional seat. And mind obviously corresponds to what is translated uh, in, in Deuteronomy 6.5, might. And the Hebrew term had a broad, broad understanding and carried with it the general idea of moving ahead with energy and strength. And here it's, it's actually used to have that kind of a sense of intellectual determination to love God, carrying both the meaning of endeavor and of strength. See, the, the genuine love of God, the genuine love of the Lord is, is not just one facet. It's multifaceted. It's intelligent. It's feeling. It's willing. It's serving. It's all those things. It involves thought and sensitivity and intent. God never just, you know, wants from us empty words. And that's what they were doing. Twice a day, they were reciting this Shema to God. And Jesus is pointing out to them, you know what? There's more than just words here. It means a little more. And just as God loves us with his whole being, he wants us to love him with his with our whole being. I mean that's why John 3:16 says what it says. That God so loved. That's the word. That he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for the redemption. I mean you can see how deep the love of God for us is. Godly love whether it's as his love for man or man's love for him either way, it's measured by what it gives, not by what it gets. It doesn't love based on what you're going to reap as a result of that. James reminds us that even the demons believe, right, that God exists. But instead of rejoicing in that belief, it says they shudder. See, there's a a mark, beloved, of the distinguished faith, a believing faith. A belief in God, in the love of God. Faith in Jesus Christ has to be characterized by a consuming love for him. Because if it doesn't, then it's not faith at all. It's definitely not saving faith. See, that's what makes salvation such an incredible thing. When you are saved, when God opens your eyes to the gospel and he transforms you out of the darkness into the light... He transforms you. He changes you. He gives you a new will, a new desire, a new attitude. And, and that attitude is fixated on a deep love for God that you never had before. I always get worried when I talk to people about their faith and I say, well, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. I say, what? What do you mean? You know, Did you mean you got saved at a young age Well, no, I've just always been a Christian. That just makes me nervous. Because I'm thinking, what you're telling me is there's no transformation. You've always been this way. That might be a problem. John makes love for God the true mark of a believer. You see that in John 14. You see it in 1 John. See, It's it's so important to us that we have not only a love for each other, but a love for God. Turn over to that passage in in 1 John. It's just such a good, basic um, understanding of what God expects from those who are saved. Truly converted. 1 John chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Know God, know Christ. If we what? Keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a what? A liar. (laughs) The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... In Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Are you sitting there this morning wondering if you're saved or you're not? Are you wondering, boy, do I have the salvation? Am I Christ or not? I I don't understand. It says in verse 6, Whoever says that he abides in Him ought to what? Walk in the same manner, the same way in which He walked. It's not rocket science. If you call yourself a Christian, then you should live like Christ. You should follow him. You should be obedient to him. And John goes on there. He says, I'm not writing you something new. This isn't a new commandment. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. You mean all 613? What if I mess up? He's not saying that. He's simply saying, you know what? You're going to have an interest in the things of God. Because remember, the law was not given to be kept. Right? All those laws were given to show our inability to keep it. That's the whole point. So you don't want to leave here going, okay, I better you know, sit down and figure out those 613 laws and, and start commandments and start keeping them. Or I'm not a Christian. No, that's not what we're talking about. Basically, he boils it all down for us right here in this text. A person who belongs to God, loves God, and therefore obeys God. 1 Corinthians 16.22 describes the unbeliever this way. Anyone... Who does not love the Lord. Who's an unbeliever? Anyone who does not love the Lord. True love of God declares with Paul in, in Romans 7 15 For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. See, he he understands that you know what? I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. I'm doing something that's showing that I do not love God and I, I don't want to do it anymore. We need to love what is right. And that was the total opposite attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. They repeatedly, conde- they were, Jesus repeatedly condemned them for making great pretense in their love for God on the outside, Right? But on the inside, there was nothing there. You know, we would call that what? Hypocrisy, right? Uh, Saying that you're a Christian and yet living like you're not. Even though they recited this, I'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, meticulously, regularly, every day. Jesus is pointing out to them, you know what? It's not good enough just to have it roll off your lips like that. I mean, I grew up in a church where I could, you know, I could say the Our Father in seconds and then move on to the Hail Mary and, you know, go through the whole thing. I can do it in my sleep backwards. I mean, it was just a, just a, a rote thing that I did, thinking that somehow that was going to earn favor with God. Well, just as belonging to God is loving God, not belonging to him is hating him. You say, well, there's no gray area in between. no. There's really not. Scripture doesn't allow for that. God's people are those who love Him. And those who are unsaved are those who hate Him. They're called the adversaries in Scripture. Well, how do you know if you're one of God's people who love Him, who truly loves the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Well, here's a quick little list for you. The person... Who demonstrates his love by meditating on God's glory? Psalm 18:1 to3. Do you meditate on God's glory? Do you trust in God's divine power? Psalm 3123. Psalm 31:23. Do you seek fellowship with God? Psalm 63, one to eight. Do you love God's law? Psalm 119. Verse, you know, you do the whole thing, but 165 is what I wrote down. Are you sensitive to how God feels? Psalm 69:9 speaks of that. Do you love what God loves? Psalm 119, verse 72, verse 97, verse 103. Do you love whom God loves? First John 5, 1 John 5.1 Do you hate what God hates? Psalm 97.10 Do you grieve over your sin? Matthew 26.75 Do you reject the world? 1 John 2.15 Do you long to be with Christ? 2 Timothy 4, eight. You obey God wholeheartedly, John fourteen twenty one. That That's just a brief outline of ways that you can look at those things and say, you know what, if I fall within the realm of those things, I grieve over my sin, I hate what God hates, I love what God loves, I reject the world, I long to be with Christ, I want to obey God wholeheartedly. Those are indicators that you are a believer, that you're following Christ. The one who truly loves God is the one who truly obeys God. Like Paul, he says in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of his love and his obedience is imperfect. His love is imperfect. But he says this in, first, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But I press on in order that he may lay hold of that which... Also, he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, pressing on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you know what? You're not going to perfect all those things, right? This Christianity thing is a work in process. We're always going to be a work in process. It's funny. Sometimes, you know, my wife and I will be discussing something and she'll bring up, you know, we've been married 19 years. (laughs) but I just want to go, so what? You think it? what, year 20? You know, all of a sudden it's just bliss and all the arguments go away or whatever and that never happens ever again? No. You know, marriage is difficult. Difficult for anybody. But it's, it's, it's something that we think in our mind, well, the, the more time, then... No. The more time you're a Christian, you're not going to become uh, impervious to sin. Hopefully, you'll become more holy. Hopefully, you'll become more Christ-like in your walk with Christ. You'll become more mature in your faith. You'll have a better understanding of the character of God and His Word, which will kind of bolster your your faith and your obedience to Him. But don't ever think that there's going to come a day you're going to wake up, open your eyes and get out of bed and say, hey, today's the day I'm going to be a perfect Christian. I'm not going to sin ever. It's not going to happen. Until that day when God comes back and we are glorified and we are in his presence. I mean, the great forgiver is also the great enabler, right? I mean, he, he allows us to live this life. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's how we live this life. We don't live it on our own. I couldn't last two minutes. In Christ, without, without the Holy Spirit, without God's word, without God's enabling. You know, and as a man, sometimes I'm thinking, well, you know, would you call that a crutch? Or what would you call that? Call it whatever you want. I really don't care. I just need God in my life every moment of every day. Because if I don't, I'm going to mess up. And he's given us the ability to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Even before Christ came to earth, God's way was the way of love which was the way of obedience. See, so many times we think of love and obedience as two separate things. And they're really not, are they? If your children love you, what? They will obey you. That's that's common sense. Now, are kids going to be kids? Sure. But you know what? When, When a child is just outright rebellious, and you ask them to do one thing, and they do the polar opposite Okay, after a while, you're going to figure out real quick, you know what, i got an issue with my kid. For some reason, they don't love me. They're not showing me love through their obedience. And so the Jews of Jesus' day should have been convicted by their lovelessness and their disobedience to this command. But you know what, just like everything else, it went right over their head. And so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom says, you know, I'm not going to just answer your question. I'm going to put an additional comment to my answer. And so in verse 39, he gives them basically, he answers the, the scribe, and he says the first one is this, and you love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. Mark says with your strength. This is the great and first commandment. If you do that, And that alone is going to cover a lot of things. But, he says, there's a second. And it's this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I should say, the second commandment has the same entity as the first. What? Love. Love is is the main ingredient here. The command for genuine love of God, Jesus declared, is next followed by an importance by the command of love for your neighbor. And that is just as important as loving yourself. You know, a lot of Christians today, you, you think that, you know, they're walking around with ashes on their head and sulking and just sad and down. Oh, woe is me you know, there's no, there's no love of self there. Now, are we supposed to worship self? Are we supposed to exalt self? No. But you have to come to an understanding in your life that, you know what? God created you the person you are. He created you the way you look. He created you with the talents and gifts he's given you. He's created you with a personality. And who are you to stop and say, oh, I don't like this. I wish I was somebody else. I wish I had that, or I wish I could do this. Or That's not how God created you, Beloved. Don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. And so he says here, love your neighbor as yourself. Problem is, a lot of us don't love ourselves to the point where we're not going to love our neighbors either. You know, some of us don't even know our neighbors, let alone love them. And you stop and you think about it. A genuine love for one's neighbor is the same kind of love that God has for us. And what he's saying is, your neighbor may be Jewish, he may be Gentile. Jesus is telling them. You don't distinguish that. You've got to love them as yourself. Well, how does that flesh out? Well, when a person is hungry, what do you do? You, You feed yourself, right? I mean, don't you? I mean, if you're hungry, you don't just you know, sit there and let your stomach growl when you have food in the kitchen to eat. I mean, you get up and you get yourself something to eat or you go out to eat or do whatever. When you're thirsty, what do you do? You take a glass of water. That's how you treat yourself. That's showing that you appreciate yourself. And so when you stop and think about it, you don't just sit there and think about food. That would drive you nuts. You don't just talk about it. The more you talk about it, the hungrier you get. You got to get up and do something about it. That's why James chapter two, verse 16 says a person never simply says to himself, "Go in peace and be warmed and filled," right? You don't do that. Ephesians 5:29 says, "No one ever hated his own flesh," Paul says, "But you nourish it, you cherish it. It's the temple of God, we're, we're told. And just as a person looks out for their own welfare and their own being, Jesus is saying, just as you love yourself, you should love your neighbor just as yourself. That's a basic two requirements. If you had to boil Christianity down to two things, that would be it. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Like I said, it's not rocket science, but it's something that somehow we fail to compute most of the time in our daily busy lives. And then Jesus here at the end, he says, on these two commandments, ride the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything is, is hung on these two things. And that's what they were not getting. They thought as long as they dressed up in their robes and went out in the streets and prayed in front of everybody and were the respected rabbi or the teacher in the area, that somehow they got to pass on all this stuff. No. Jesus is saying, no, the one who does not love does not know God. First John chapter 4, for God is love. He who loves his neighbor, Paul says, has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13. I mean, if people love perfectly, there'd be no need for the law. (laughs) But that's not the case, is it? And so we have to understand that this man who came, this, this, this scribe, he came to Jesus. And when he asked him this question, Mark tells us that he answered, the lawyer was impressed with Jesus' answer. Literally impressed. And this was a smart guy, obviously. And basically, what his answer back over in Mark, you can follow that, but he says, You know what? You have truly stated what is true. That's what he tells Jesus. And remember, he's in front of all these people, they're watching. To love him, the Lord God, with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know what? That's a lot more than all these burnt offerings and sacrifices that these other people do and then bypass the whole thing. And in Mark chapter 12, it says, and when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, here's what Jesus said to this lawyer at the conclusion of their conversation. You are not far from the kingdom of God. See, somehow this man was set apart from just the other religious people. There was something, maybe he had heard Jesus teach before. Maybe there was something that stirred in his heart. But for some reason, he was sent out on this mission to trick him up. But I think in the depth of his heart, he thought, you know what? (laughs) This is an impossible task. I've seen what this man has been able to do. Heal the blind, heal the sick, raise the dead. I mean, I I heard him as he kind of sent these other two groups away with their tail between their legs. I'm not going to be able to trip this man up, but I'm going to do what I was sent to do. And when he commends Jesus on his answer, Jesus answers back to him and says, you know what, you are not far. You're not in there yet, but you're not far From the kingdom of God. I ask you this morning, where are you in relationship to the kingdom of God? I pray that you're not far. I pray that you are part of, that you have come to understand who Christ is. That you're not like these Pharisees and these Sadducees who are just trying to trick Jesus. But I pray even if you're searching for the truth, don't stop. Don't stop till you find it. Because you're going to find it in Christ. In Christ alone. That's the only truth there is. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we sit here, Lord, and contemplate these words that we've heard and from your word. Father, I pray that we would not be as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and allow these truths to just roll off our backs and roll out of our minds as we leave this place. But Lord, that we would stop and we would ponder them. That we would honestly assess our own spiritual condition. Do we truly love God? Loving God doesn't mean you just come to church or put something in the offering plate or read the Bible. Or but do you truly love God? Don't get caught up in all the externals. Have you relinquished your heart to Christ? Have you given Him your heart, your life, to do with as He desires? I mean, He created you. He knows exactly what you would be best at. He knows exactly the best way to use you while you're here on earth still. If you would yield yourself to him, he would save you. And he would transform you. He would open up a whole new world to you, literally. A world that revolves around Christ, a world that revolves around his word, and a love to serve. Father, we pray this morning that if there's any here who's yet to put their trust or faith in you, that you would move and work in their hearts. Lord, if they have questions or ponder things in their own heart, Lord, I pray that you would give them the wisdom to come to you, to be drawn to your word. Lord, that they would at least investigate the claims of Christ. Because either this is true or it's not. There's There's no half truth here. Either Christ was who he said he was, or he was a raving madman. And if that's the case, let's just all go home and not come back. But, Lord, I know by the transformation of my own life and I know by the transformation in the lives of others that this Christ is a true and living God and that he can do the same for others. We pray, Lord, that you would just move and work in our hearts this holiday time, this Christmas season, Lord, as it approaches quickly. Lord, I pray that we would do everything we can to reach out to our neighbors and our friends and show to them the love of Christ in us. The hope of glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.